0: So I want to speak tonight about five states that are commonly experienced in meditation, just as they are commonly experienced in life, and known as the five hindrances. They're known as hindrances because when we become involved in them or lost in them, they hinder our sense of concentration, they hinder our sense of spaciousness, And they create a kind of tunnel vision so that we become, as is known uh, in Buddhist teaching, fixated. There's a great big world to be experienced, but we are lost in, in some kind of tunnel vision that compresses reality so that we lose touch with that sense of openness, of possibility, of clarity in some way. For many of you, this is... Uh, the millionth time you've heard a hindrance talk. For some of you, it's probably the first. But I think in some way, these experiences are so common that it's worth hearing again and again. I know that when I was first practicing in India and I was experiencing all the hindrances, which are, by the way, (laughs) attachment, aversion, which is anger and fear, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt... I really did think it was just me. And the first time I heard a talk about the hindrances, placing them in the classical Buddhist teaching, which meant 2500 years old, my first thought was, "Oh good. <laughs> you know, if it's on a list, that old, that ancient, it's not just me. <laughs> this is a known experience." But to begin with as kind of a prelude and Uh, Actually, as a kind of comment on the ways we work with the hindrances, I want to talk about what I sometimes call three visionary statements of the Buddha, which form the context of understanding in our practice. The first is a statement of the Buddha's where he said, The mind is naturally radiant and pure, the mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. Now, the word defilement is is a kind of awkward translation of a word um, from the Pali language, klesa, or klesha in Sanskrit, which more literally translated means torment of the mind. The mind is naturally radiant and pure, the mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer, like anger, like greed, like jealousy, like envy. And of course, the, the import of that statement is that these forces are just visiting. They're not who we actually are. They're not inherent to our being. They're adventitious. They arise out of conditions. When conditions come together for them to appear, they will appear, and then they will pass away. That's their nature. So as soon as I heard that example, I really liked it because I could imagine myself sitting happily at home, minding my own business, and hearing a knock at the door, then going off to answer, opening the door, and there's greed or jealousy or anger, and I say, welcome home. It's all yours. It's like I forget who actually lives there. Or certainly, very commonly, we have the opposite reaction where we are so ashamed and so afraid and so angry at the appearance of this visitor that we desperately try to shut the door to pretend it never came. And of course that doesn't work. Sadly speaking, since we we do it so often, it doesn't actually work because that visiting force of jealousy or greed or whatever will come in through the window or will climb down the chimney somehow it will make its appearance felt. And I often think that one of the great skills of meditation training is to know what to do when we hear that knock at the door. We open it up. And here is one of these unpleasant, unwelcome visitors. Instead of being so afraid or so forgetful that we dive into it, you know, and give over to it, or so afraid that we try to make it go away forcefully and ineffectually. Can we have the skill to relate at that moment with awareness, with compassion, to recognize it is just a visitor? No matter how often it comes, how powerful the knock, even if it seems like it's there just about all the time, in truth, it's just a visitor. Because the mind is naturally radiant and pure. Can we get in touch with and then trust and remember who actually lives there? And can we treat visitors as visitors? So that's the first kind of visionary statement of the Buddhas. And the second is something that the teachings of the Buddha are so famous for, and that is suffering, where he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. As one of my friends who was a great wit said, suffering and the end of suffering are two things, not one thing. <laughs> but somehow it seemed to be one thing. And I think very often we see that they are one thing. It's in the open-hearted, full-on acknowledgement of suffering that we sense the end of suffering. And that statement, of course, is, is often misunderstood so that people will say that Buddha's teaching is pessimistic, it's depressing, it's, it's life-hating, it's annihilating. But of course, he didn't just say suffering and suffering and suffering and suffering. He said suffering and the end of suffering. In fact, once years ago, I was reading The New Yorker. There was an article on Buddhism, and the author wrote, according to the Buddha, the purpose of life is to suffer. And I thought, wow, you know, that's so appealing, you know. <laughs> I'll sign up for that retreat any day, you know. It's like, what is that? But of course, that's not true. And the way that statement is used, it's used in many ways, the Buddhist statement, not the author's statement. Um, the way it's used is, first of all, to recognize that it is through the acknowledgement of suffering rather than its avoidance that we can come to the end. And also it's used as a kind of template or grid with which to look at our internal experiences and the experiences we see around us. Instead of, say, anger arising in our mind and our calling it bad and wrong and disgusting and terrible and hating ourselves for it and, you know, just dreading it, we can see it as suffering. Some states are suffering and produce suffering, rather than seeing them as bad and wrong and and terrible. So instead of good and evil, or right and wrong even, being the kind of grid with which we look at things, we look at that which is skillful and that which is unskillful. That which is skillful leads to the end of suffering. That which is unskillful leads to more and more and more suffering. So imagine for a moment being filled with jealousy, filled with greed, filled with fear, and not calling it bad, but rather translating that into this is a state of suffering. It would be a very different relationship we have to that feeling, however strong it might be. That translation of kalesa, torment of the mind, that's something most of us can get behind. We know that when we are enveloped in anger in resentment in fear, in greed, we're in torment. And so what would it be like to make that translation, to care for ourselves, to have that kind of compassion in the face of those states? And that forms the bridge, of course, for having that different relationship to others as we see them lost in jealousy and greed and envy and anger. Can we sense that as a state of suffering? just as we have for ourselves. And so that's the second visionary statement of the Buddhas. And then the third is that really simple one where he said, all beings everywhere want to be happy. We all just want to be happy. Every one of us. In fact, they say when the Buddha became enlightened, he was, as you know, sitting under a tree in what is now the the outskirts of the town of Bodhgaya. And he stayed there in the vicinity of the tree for 49 days. He did seven things for seven days each. He did walking meditation, they say, for seven days. And uh, he happily contemplated something, I forget what, for seven days. And and, uh, maybe most charmingly, they say he gazed in gratitude at the tree for seven days for having sheltered him. His night of practice. And somewhere in the course, toward the end of the 49 days, he was pondering and seemed to come to the conclusion that he wasn't going to, in fact, teach. He had experienced this tremendous freedom of mind and, and boundless wisdom and love and compassion, and he wasn't going to teach. Uh, Some texts say it would be too troublesome. Nobody would want to hear it. Some people say, some people interpret that to say um, he thought it would be so simple, no one would believe him. They'd be kind of disdainful. And as the story goes, the legend goes, this celestial being appeared to urge the Buddha to use his psychic vision to survey the world, hoping that something he would see would so move him that he would, in fact, make the decision to teach. And it's said that he did just that, the Buddha. He surveyed the world with his psychic vision, and what he saw did move him and make him decide to teach. And what he saw was not even so much the extent and the duration and the varieties of suffering that people were going through, but it was their ignorance. It was that everybody wanted to be happy, and so few had a clue as to where happiness was to be found. And we all know that, that we continue to make mistakes mindlessly that create so much suffering for ourselves or for others, but if we really look, we all do really want to be happy. And so that is the common thread, one of the common threads between us. We want to be happy, we're vulnerable to change, to loss, to pain. We're more alike than we're not alike. And we can give ourselves a break in that sense as we continue to journey, trying to actualize that happiness. So That's the third statement of the Buddhas. And we'll talk about, I'll talk about the five hindrances in that context as visiting states, as torments of the mind, as qualities that when we are lost in them produce tremendous suffering. And when we can see them for what they are, we can see their transparency in a way. We can let them go. We realize we don't have to go there. And so then they don't serve as hindrances anymore. The Buddha said, I think, quite beautifully in terms of metta, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted cannot be marred it cannot be ruined develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space it's like if somebody were standing here in the middle of the room throwing paint around in the air there's nowhere in the space for the paint to land it doesn't matter it wouldn't matter if it were a very well chosen color or a really garish mistake of some sort The paint isn't going to land in the space. The space is not going to be ruined by the paint. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. It's that much openness, that much clarity, that lack of confinement, of holding, of needing things to be a certain way. So that's the nature of metta. The nature of attachment, which is the first hindrance and the near enemy of metta, is very different than that. Attachment is clinging, it's wanting, it's demanding that things be a certain way. As I was talking about in one of my groups today, you know, metta is really a quality of giving. It's a practice of generosity, of freely offering our energy. And like any practice of generosity, it involves some confrontation with our desires, our expectations. Are we giving a gift and kind of waiting around, thinking, okay, well thank me, will you? You know, or thank me again, that wasn't enough. Or are we wanting something in return? So we're kind of almost holding out the gift and pulling at something at the same time. You know, what are we are we demanding? What's the the nature of that expectation, or can we simply give? That's the difference. It's not that attachment is bad or wrong or contemptible and that we should hate ourselves for feeling it, but what would it be like if every time you heard the word attachment in this context, you know, in, in the way that it's used in the Buddhist teaching, you substituted the word control? trying to be in control of life, keeping it from changing, experience, having only pleasure happen and no pain, other people, so that they behaved according to our wishes. I think that gives some of the sense of the the terrible pain and the problem with attachment. It's like trying to be in control all the time to keep things the way we feel we need them to be. And in metta, of course, it, it comes up so often because it is the near enemy of metta. And I think that the journey to metta is often taken through the terrain of attachment as we feel our way through just what that near enemy is. It's what, as I described to the group, what one of my friends once called Meta with an edge You know, like, may you be happy by tonight in this way, you know, and may you improve your behavior, because that would really help me. And you know, I really think you should do this and, and not that. And, um, or as somebody once said to me, you know they had come here and done this retreat and used a particular friend as the object of meta throughout the retreat, and then they left and. I ran into them somewhere and and they told me they had run into their friend sometime after the retreat and they said, you know, I was really disappointed because they were no better than they were before, you know, and and I've been thinking, you know, I gave you a whole week, you know, like, why aren't you really improved? You know, that's metu with an edge. That is really attachment. And they're close, but not the same. So to see that effort to control, which is so fruitless, that, that kind of demand, that expectation, the craving, the clinging, trying to keep only pleasant experience happening and pain from ever arriving. Talk about fruitless. And to be able to, to recognize that tendency It's going to come. It's going to visit. It's going to visit all the time. Sometimes in the context of retreat, we call it if-only mind. You know, if only I had brought different shoes. I forget who said that, but thank you. It was perfect. If only, you know, if only. If only it weren't going to snow tomorrow. This would be a really good retreat. If only, you know, just that kind of postponement, that narrowing of all happiness down into something we don't yet have. Or if we have it, we've got to keep it. That's the problem with attachment. It's that tunnel vision. So we see it, and we see it for what it is, and learn not to confuse it with the actual state of metta. And then the next hindrance is the far enemy of metta, and that is the clear opposite, which is aversion, which is both fear and anger. And interestingly enough, in the Buddhist psychology, fear and anger are considered the same mind state, where fear is the frozen, held-in, imploded form, and anger is the outflowing, expressive, energized form. But they're really the same thing, of striking out against what's happening, trying to declare it to be untrue, wanting to separate from it as though we could make it untrue. And it's interesting to explore a state like anger and fear, you know, as its as its other side, to understand its nature. You know, in anger there are many positive attributes. There's energy, there's a lack of apathy. There's a willingness to say no, to reach for a sense of integrity, to declare boundaries. There's all of that. But as is said in the Buddhist psychology, anger is like a forest fire. It will burn up its own support. And that means that if we are lost in it, it will devastate us. And not only will it devastate us, but like a forest fire, it can range wild and free so that we might end up far far away from where we really want to be and we all know that from life <laughs> you know from having been lost in the state of anger so the question becomes can we somehow capture the clarity of that without the burning without the the deluded aspect to it here too it's tunnel vision You know, it's funny, um, in doing this practice where we have these categories of beings, we have ourselves, of course, and then the benefactor, the friend, the neutral person coming up, someone we don't strongly like or dislike, and then someone we have difficulty with, and then that move on to, to all beings everywhere. And sometimes you choose somebody as your benefactor and you're thinking about them and you're wishing them well and you're filled with just such gratitude for their existence and then you remember that time you turned to them and they weren't there and you feel betrayed and you think, well, you know, that's not my benefactor. That's my difficult person, in fact. (laughs) I told this group this also, that I um, have this fantasy about someday doing a retreat, leading a metta retreat where we only choose one person. And the parts of them that we really admire, they're like our benefactor. The parts of them we feel comfortable with, they're like our friend. The parts of them we don't know so well, they're like our neutral person. The parts of them we find difficult, they're like our difficult person. And the person I was talking to said, well, you know, you could just choose yourself because we play all of those different roles with ourselves, in fact. Life is very complicated. It's intricate. And one of the problems with being lost in anger or fear is that we consign somebody to a category. You are the one who hurt me, and you always will be known as only that or I am the one who made that stupid mistake. And I have to recognize I'm going to be an idiot for the rest of my life. You know, we, we categorize, we solidify, we try to solidify where in fact there's movement and change. And so we're living in defiance of how things actually are. Nobody is just one thing. And we are not just one thing. Life is moving, it's changing. Even if we don't see someone change in front of us, that potential is always, always there. So that's one part of understanding the nature of anger. To see how it creates that kind of tunnel vision. And when was the last time you were really angry at yourself? And you felt a deep recognition of the law of change. Well, things can be different in the future. It's not that easy. You know, we tend to solidify. When was the last time you were really afraid? And your mind happily thought, well, if it doesn't work out this way, maybe it'll work out that way. That's not the nature of fear. So to understand just that contraction, that, that sense of limitation that happens, and how we don't have to buy into that. We don't have to believe that. We can see the feeling. We can understand its nature. We cannot have our our perception so distorted because of it. Because the truth is that everything is changing all of the time, and everyone is changing all of the time. No matter how we try to control that in attachment or push it away in aversion, that, in fact, is how things are. And to live in harmony with that truth is happiness. Happiness. We certainly experience a tremendous amount of aversion in a meta retreat. It's almost funny, actually. I do wish somebody would invent that thing, you know, where we can amplify people's thoughts, because I think it would be so funny. (laughs) You know, like, may you be happy, and then, you know, know, why is that person? (laughs) I think the the subcurrent of irritation would be very amusing to to bring out, wouldn't it? <laughs> you look skeptical. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they say, actually, the Buddha taught metta practice as the antidote to fear, classically. And yet, again, if you think of it as a journey, uh, they're awful, there's an awful lot of times of fear. It's like we're taking a journey through that terrain of the hindrances and most particularly the attachment and the aversion on the way to having some clarity and some confidence in the state of metta. They say that the Buddha taught metta the first time as the legend goes to a group of monks who he'd sent off to this forest to meditate and the forest they say was inhabited by tree spirits who did not like the presence of the monks and so they tried to scare them away. They presented as these terrible ghoulish sounds and these horrible apparitions and, um, and in fact the monks became absolutely terrified and they ran away. They ran back to the Buddha and they said, Oh Lord Buddha, please send us to a different forest. And he said, I'm going to send you back to the very same forest but I'm going to give you the only protection you'll ever need. And that was the first teaching of metta. He told them to go back and not just recite the metta, but to actually practice it. And so they did that, and as these stories all end so happily, it's said that the tree spirits were so overcome by the beautiful energy of the metta that they decided they were very happy to have the monks there. And they fed them, and they took care of them, and so on. And why those stories all end so happily, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, um, you know, the, the meaning of it is really that antidote to fear, fear which will have us pull away, withhold, contract, and metta, which is spaciousness, it's openness, it's connection. But that's the irony, is that we will experience plenty of fear and plenty of anger and irritation and impatience as we are uncovering as we are moving through those layers of visitors, you might say, to come to rest with some confidence in who actually lives here. When you do metta practice, um, say in Burma, there's a, a list of, I think it's 11 benefits that metta practice is supposed to give you. And so you begin each sitting With a recitation of the 11 Benefits, because that's supposed to inspire you. And they begin with, you know, if you do metta practice, you will sleep easily, you'll wake easily, you'll have pleasant dreams. And, um, you know, many times you'll have had the worst nightmares imaginable. And you get up for that first sitting and you say, when you do metta practice, (laughs) you'll sleep, you know, sleep easily, you'll wake easily, you'll have pleasant dreams. And you think, really? but that's it's almost like that's the paradox of a journey that we go through these states but we can see them for what they are so it's not like going through them mindlessly and being lost in them or being mired there that's the gift that we can have awareness and compassion nonetheless even as all these things are happening So the next hindrance is the state of sleepiness or sloth and torpor, as it's sometimes called traditionally, where our minds are just heavy, like lead, you know, really like lead. And we may have slept quite restfully through the night and we just sit down, we fall asleep. Or sometimes we haven't slept restfully through the night, we're simply tired. And and there's just not enough energy in our, our system to sustain our practice. But tiredness is is really only one of the reasons that that kind of state comes. It's a great dullness of mind, that heaviness of mind, that sense of disconnection from what is actually happening. And you know how often it comes when our experience is simply neutral. And actually, this is a good night to talk about that because tomorrow I think we go on and work with the neutral person. In mindfulness practice, in Vipassana practice, we talk about every object we experience, whether it's a sight or sound or a sensation in the body, as being perceived as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And when that object is pleasant, our challenge is to be with it fully without getting attached. When that object is unpleasant, our challenge is to be with it fully without the anger and fear. And when the object is neutral, our challenge is to stay awake because we tend to be so uh, Patricia talked about this also last night, we tend to be so tied into intensity in order to feel alive that those ordinary moments of taking a breath taking a step, we go to sleep. And here too in metta practice, when we're not overcome by some feeling of, of joy, of love, or dread and panic, it's easy to go to sleep. And certainly when we turn our attention to someone like the neutral person, we can just sort of fog out, like who cares really, you know, we don't even know them. <laughs> when, you know, it's our benefactor and we're indebted to them and, and we feel so grateful to them, You know, there's some juice there. And even when it's our difficult person, you know, we feel, okay, I'm on an edge now. You know, I'm really going to grow as a person. This is an incredible challenge. And we're awake. But like the neutral person, you know, it's like, I don't know anything about them. I don't know their name. You know, it's like this generic living being. It's very easy to go to sleep. But... It's the most amazing thing, I find. And in fact, the neutral person is my favorite part of metta practice for that very reason, that they are a generic living being. And the quality of connection and the depth of care comes not because we've made something exciting happen. You know, we've woven some story of their lives or even we've learned about the, the particular sorrows or challenges of their lives but because we're paying attention to them. We're staying awake. We're connecting, rather than ignoring them or overlooking them or looking through them or going to sleep, as, as we can so easily do. I think the best stories about metapractice practice come from the part of practice that is opening to a neutral person. Like Often, in a, a situation like this, in a retreat setting, will suggest, you know, try to choose a neutral person here, if you can. If there's somebody here that you haven't judged yet, <laughs> as liking or disliking. <laughs> so you can practice tonight, so you can look around a little bit. <laughs> and it's very often the case, and you know, this goes back to my favorite thing to say about metapractice, which is, it doesn't matter what you feel <laughs> When you're doing metta, what matters is that wholeheartedness of attention, that quality of gathering your energy behind the phrases. Because very often, say in the three month retreat that we teach, where people will choose a person here, as you know, in the context of the retreat, as their neutral person. And sometimes weeks and weeks and weeks will go by and they'll say, I don't feel anything. I'm not doing it right. I just don't feel anything. And then one day, I'll I'll come in and there'll be a note on the board saying, My neutral person didn't come for breakfast. Can you please go check on them? And I think, you're yeah, right, you know, that's what this person wants. I'm sure they're asleep. But, you know, it's that sense of like, are they okay? I care about them. They're they're sort of on my team, you know, they're one of my people. And that comes just because day after day you're actually holding this person in your heart and paying attention. So unlike our usual habit in life, which is to combat sleepiness or disinterest or boredom, all of which fall under that sloth and torpor category, by raising the the intensity of what's going on, we counteract it by paying more careful attention so that we wake up, even in a basically neutral situation. And sometimes sleepiness or sloth and torpor comes... Actually naturally in the course of practice, because there are so many different things that are being developed in meditation. There are qualities of peace and calm and tranquility, and there are qualities of energy and alertness and interest and creativity. And you know, there's there's not such a perfect balance all the time between those two sides of things, kind of the calm side and the sort of up interested, energetic side. Um, You know, classically we would say the balance between concentration and energy or tranquility and alertness, if you're from Barry. The Barrytown motto is tranquil and alert. Um, So we work with that. For those times that the tranquility side of things is much stronger than the energy that's cooking in our system, what we notice, and this is a very common experience as, as you get more experienced in meditation, we notice this kind of dreamy, drifty state where you're sort of paying attention, and you're sort of not, and then you know, you kind of ooze along in there, and then you're asleep. That's an extremely common state. Because, and it's not all bad, because it does mean that tranquility side of things is getting deeper, it's just not in balance. You know, we need to raise more energy at that point without jeopardizing or losing the tranquility. And it's very amusing often in meta practice when this happens because metta is such an active practice. We're actually using words and phrases. And when we go into that dreamy, drifty, oozy state, then the words can easily become garbled. And I used to hear myself in Burma sometimes saying I had two actually that were, were very funny. One was, May I fall asleep, may I fall asleep and I go, No, wait a minute, you know. That's not right. And another one was, May you be filled with suffering and then I go, No, 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 no. May you be free of suffering and actually my My very favorite story like that was from a friend of mine who is from Switzerland. And English is maybe his fourth language, I think. And he was sitting here uh, one year, and his phrases were, may I be healthy and well, may I live with ease. And he said one day he heard himself say, may I be wealthy in hell. (laughs) And may I live with eels? And because English was his fourth language, he went on for some time, and then he went, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. That sounds a little off. You know, so that's a signal. If you find yourself sitting here saying, may I live with eels, you know, or something like that, it's a sign that you're out of balance in some way. And so we work to wake up you know not to lose the tranquility but to bring some energy into our practice that could be a time when you really try to focus on the object you know get a clearer sense of that person whether it's through visualization or just a sense of them which is also fine to to bring that kind of clarity when you gather your energy behind just one phrase you really aim your attention at this moment so that the energy is clarified in that way. You're not spreading it out in some sense between the past, the present, and the future. But it's now, just this phrase. And you will find that that the energy actually picks up in your practice. And the next of the hindrances after grasping or attachment, aversion, and sleepiness is like the energetic opposite of sleepiness, which is restlessness. And that is the state of the opposite imbalance, where there can be a lot of energy and interest and excitement and enthusiasm, but not enough calm and tranquility to ground it, to to balance it out. Sometimes we experience it very physically. You feel like you're just going to jump out of your skin. There is so much energy moving through your body. Sometimes it's experienced more mentally or or emotionally. Classically, it can appear as our mind's going into the future and planning and planning and planning and planning, almost as though feeling, well, if I could just plan this through enough, it's going to work out. And then we walk, and then we sit, and we do it again. And we plan, and we plan, and we plan, and we plan. Sometimes, classically, we experience restlessness as our mind's going into the past. And very often in meditation experience, and certainly in doing something like metta, where we find that we are, are kind of taking a sort of moral inventory, we Go over and over and over the mistakes we've made. The things that we did that we regret now. The things that we didn't do that we really feel we should have. The times we didn't speak out where we now think it would have been so much better if I'd said something. The times where we said something where we now wish we hadn't, you know, it's a lot happening in that way. Just naturally, almost. And the important thing, of course, is to recognize the kind of the truthfulness of those memories or those feelings without getting lost in them, without getting mired in them. Like, I am the person who made this mistake, and that's all that I am, which leaves the, the realm of kind of rightful regret and moves into more like a lacerating self-hatred which doesn't remember change and doesn't remember possibility, that's when that kind of memory will become restlessness, where we'll just go over and over and over and over that time without being able to let go in effect and move on, having learned something. The Buddha said, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And part of what we experience as we recall those times we have harmed another is that lack of love for ourselves and and the kind of the rip in the fabric of harmony that has been created. And it's painful. It's genuinely painful. But we don't need to get lost there. That becomes unskillful, as we say, because we're stuck. Instead, we can recognize it and move on with the determination not to behave in that way again. I can remember when I was sitting here in 1984 with Saira Upandita, who was a Burmese teacher, who came here. Um, We had invited him on the recommendation of some of our friends who'd been to Burma and practiced with him and and said he was a really great master. And we invited him, kind of sight unseen. Um, So he came, and many of us began sitting with him the day after he arrived, you know, for three months. And, and he turned out to be, he was, is a really wonderful teacher, but he was also um, fierce and demanding and intense and kind of ferocious, a teacher. And there was a period, we were seeing him six days a week um, for individual interviews, you know, or discussion of our practice, and there was a period when all that was happening in my practice pretty much was memory after memory after memory of something I had done wrong, and I sort of didn't want to reveal it to him. But I was seeing him six days a week, and it was pretty much all that was happening. <laughs> so finally, I told him, you know, well, I just remember I did, you know, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, and and he got really excited. He said, "Does it go all the way back to your childhood?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, not that far." <laughs> and then he said something. You have to kind of get him to to sort of understand the. Um, like the tone and, and the, the reason he was doing it, he said something like, well, now I guess you're finally seeing the truth about yourself. And something in me rose up, and I thought, no, I'm not. <laughs> and he laughed, you know, I mean, he was just kind of poking at me um, because before he had said that, that had been my secret belief, like, oh, this is what's true about me. Nothing else counts. The generosity doesn't count, the care doesn't count, the intention doesn't count. This is what counts, is all those bad things I did. And he just kind of brought it up, almost like a tease, you know, and mirrored it. And once I saw it externally, I thought, that's not true, which was very useful. But if we don't have that kind of mirror, either from somebody else or from our own awareness, we can spiral down into this incredible fit of restless thinking. If I did this and I did that and I did that. And here, too, we need need to have perspective. We have to understand that this is not that skillful to do. That we need to understand that these are just thoughts that are happening in the present moment. They're visiting. We can learn from them and let go of them and move on. to to a clearer and a better place. And this is very important. And then the last of the hindrances is doubt, which comes in many, many forms. And of all of them, of attachment and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness, doubt is often the most difficult because it is so sneaky. What appears what is really doubt can often appear as wisdom, as discernment, as bold thinking, as courage. But it's basically doubt. In the Buddhist teaching, there are a couple of different kinds of doubt that are talked about. One is very, very positive, and that is really taking a stand on your own right and ability to know the truth for yourself. It's like, why be gullible? You know, why believe something just because somebody says it? Of course, the Buddha is so very famous for that comment. Don't believe anything just because I say it or because a great elder has said it or because you've read it in a sacred text. He said, put it into practice. Put it into practice and see for yourself if it's true. That is an amazing invitation But what it demands of us is a real wholehearted sense of experimentation to put something into practice, to see for ourselves if it's true. Because we can. It's also an amazing statement about human nature and the capacity we all have to be free. The other kind of doubt is the kind of doubt that doesn't allow us to put something into practice. That has us stand on the sidelines and... Uh, kind of cast aspersions on some process that we refuse to really dive into to see for ourselves. We feel safer standing away, kind of looking at a distance, being cynical, as we would say in in contemporary language. You know, going back to the Buddhist sitting under the tree, having decided to teach, he got up, they say, at the end of 49 days and began to walk to a nearby town to rejoin some of his companions. And the first person he came upon was a man who was struck by the Buddha's phenomenal radiance. You know, this is just 49 days after his his enlightenment. And so the man kind of dazzled by him, came up to him and said, Who are you? You know, what are you? Are you a human being? Are you a celestial being, a deva? Who are you? And it said that in response, the Buddha said, I'm awake. I'm an awakened one. And the man said, eh, maybe. And he walked away. (laughs) Maybe because I'm from New York, I kind of appreciate the eh, maybe, you know and i think that's not a bad attitude like why believe that you know that's an intense thing for someone to say why be gullible but what if he hadn't walked away you know what if he'd stayed and asked some questions like what does it mean to be awake are you the only one who can be awake can anybody be awake what's the path what's the process that's a very different kind of doubt of questioning instead of removing ourselves from the process and and viewing it at a distance we give it a chance, we come closer to the process, we check it out for ourselves. And this is very, very important because any practice is going to entail many ups and downs. Many times where all we're going by is like a modicum of patience, where we think enlightenment is just like a blink away and we blink (laughs) and it's not there. Times when we're sleepy, times when we're restless, times when we're filled with fear, times when we're filled with greed. What happened? It's a very mysterious process. And we need to have enough doubt so that we're insisting on seeing what happens as we try something for ourselves and in a faith so that we're not Constantly backing away from the process and not giving it a chance or giving ourselves a chance. It's so easy, you know, to say, it's not working, I can't do it, everyone can do it but me, or it's not worth doing. That's very easy. But to hang in there and to be persevering through all of those changes and all of those ups and downs, that's not so easy. We have such a a tremendous tendency to evaluate and compare and judge and analyze and assess, and that long list, you know. I can remember when I was doing walking meditation, doing metta in Burma in 1985, and I felt this tremendous tension. So much so that I stopped and I said to myself, okay, what's going on? This is a little hard to describe, but what I realized was that I was trying to do the practice and make it work instead of just doing the practice and letting it work. So I was constantly checking, you know, I was pulling myself out of the practice to check is it working? You know, what can I do to make it better? Um, was it better yesterday? What did I do wrong? Instead of just doing it. You know, to go back to that example I used early on of planting seeds, to really work with just planting the seeds and letting them go that's our job sometimes I say one of the great spiritual experiences of my life was when I was I was in New York City once checking into a hotel I was riding up to my room in the elevator when I realized I was carrying my very heavy suitcase in my arms and I had the brilliant thought put it down the elevator will carry it for you. <laughs> you know, we might think of ourselves, and I think people often do in a, a misguided way, think of themselves as kind of lazy and not trying hard enough. And, you know, but often, often the opposite is true. We're trying too hard. We're trying to do the practice and make it work. We're going up to our room in the elevator and insisting on carrying that suitcase in our arms. Put it down. You know, Let the practice work. Let it evolve. Let it happen. We have to do our part, which, in effect, is showing up. You know, It's like every moment that we can, planting those seeds, one after another. And then let nature take its course. That is one of the most kind of effective antidotes to that, that gnawing sense of cynical doubt. So we have the five hindrances of grasping, and aversion, and sleepiness, and restlessness, and doubt. And we have that basic context that our minds are naturally radiant and pure. These forces are just visiting. Can we see them as visiting? Can we understand them as painful, not bad and wrong and terrible, but painful, and thereby have compassion for ourselves? And can we remember that, that universal sense that all beings just want to be happy, and we too, and that we don't have to condemn ourselves or these states But we can let them go as leading to to unhappiness rather than the happiness that we actually deserve. So let's sit together for a moment.